I want to direct your attention this morning to Jonah chapter 4. Last week, we looked at uh, God's uh, compassion and care uh, for Sodom, although um, uh, God was not able to spare the city, as I think God would have wanted to. Uh, but um, we're going to look at God's care for the city of Nineveh today in Jonah chapter 4. God loves cities, and uh, he loves Bowling Green, and he loves what we're uh, in the process of doing over these next weeks. And uh, I'm going to talk more about that in the message today, but I hope that everyone will find a place of service in these uh, activities that are coming up. Jonah chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said, I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Father, I pray that you will uh, share your concern for this great city with us. I know that we care about Bowling Green, and you care about Bowling Green more than we do. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be the church of destiny, the church of prophecy, that you've called us to be the church that will impact this city for the glory of God. Help us, Lord, pour out your spirit, not only on our church and our leaders, but on our city, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. John Blanchard stood up from the bench, straightened his army uniform, and studied the crowd of people making their way through Grand Central Station. He looked for the girl whose heart he knew, but whose face he didn't, the girl with the rose. His interest in her had begun 13 months before at a Florida library. Taking a book off the shelf, he found himself intrigued not with the words of the book, but with the notes penciled in the margin. The soft handwriting reflected a thoughtful soul and insightful mind. In front of the book, he discovered the previous owner's name, Miss Hollis Maynell. 
With time and effort, he located her address. She lived in New York City. He wrote her a letter introducing himself and inviting her to correspond. The next day, he was shipped overseas for service in World War II. During the next year and one month, the two grew to know each other through the mail. Each letter was a seed falling on a fertile heart. A romance was budding. Blanchard requested a photograph, but she refused. She felt that if he really cared, it wouldn't matter what she looked like. When the day finally came for him to return from Europe, they scheduled their first meeting, 7 o'clock p.m. at Grand Central Station in New York. You'll recognize me, she wrote, by the red rose I'll be wearing on my lapel. So at 7 o'clock p.m., he was in the station looking for a girl whose heart he loved, but whose face he'd never seen. I'll let Mr. Blanchard tell you what happened. A young woman was coming toward me, her figure long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears. Her eyes were as blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness, and in her pale green suit, she was like springtime come alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice she was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small, provocative smile curved her lips. Going my way, sailor, she murmured. Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her, and, and then I saw Miss Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a, a woman well past 40, pretty young, she had graying hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump, her thick ankled feet thrust into low-heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit was walking quickly away. I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned me and upheld my own. And there she stood, her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. I did not hesitate. My, my fingers gripped the small, worn, blue, copy of the, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious. Something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful. I squared my shoulders and saluted and held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Hollis Maynell. I'm so glad you could meet me. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered. But the young lady in the green suit who just went by begged me to wear this rose on my coat. She said if you were to ask me to dinner, I should go and tell you she is waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of test. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
Pretty smart, wasn't she? Tell me who you love, Hausei wrote, and I'll tell you who you are. Can I repeat that? Tell me who you love, and I'll tell you who you are. You know, that's the big test with God. That's the big test. The great commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The book of Jonah is a dramatic love story. Now, a good drama, as you know, has an, a protagonist, the hero, agonizing for the good, and an antagonist. In this story, God is the protagonist. He loves big, unbelieving, unjust, violent, pagan cities. In contrast, it is the prophet and by extension you and me who are cast in the role of the city-disdaining, city-phobic, religious, moral antagonists. Three things strike me in this story. God's call to the city, God's view of the city, and God's love for the city. First, God's call to the city. Uh, the, book of out, the book of Jonah can actually be outlined by the three calls God issues to Jonah. To go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it for the evil that has come up before me. The drama opens with the first call. Of course, we know that Jonah doesn't respond to God. He goes the other way, gets on a ship going to Tarshish, and the second owner, the second offer, the one that couldn't be refused, comes after Jonah escapes the fish, but it's only a half-hearted response. But at the conclusion of the book, there is an implied appeal to love this large, dangerous city. Let me pause for a little corn, if I can. You know why the the, the fish spit up Jonah, right? He wasn't ready to die just yet. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. God calls Jonah from his comfort zone where everyone looked like him, subscribed to his values, it was familiar and safe. He drags him kicking and screaming, insisting on the unspeakable for Jonah to love a city he fears and hates. It isn't a unique call. Lest we think that this is too much of a generalization, a few centuries later the Jews again find themselves forcefully carried off by God to the next great world-class city of their day, Babylon. This time, the mode of transportation isn't a fish, but an army. The exiles come to the outskirts of the city, and like Jonah, they have no interest in going any further. The suburbs will do just fine, thank you very much. After all, they surmise, this is terrible. We've been yanked from our homes, dragged from everything comfortable, and transported to this wicked place. But that doesn't mean we have to go in Babylon itself. Let's stay out here. Let's form our own little cloister away from the violence. Let's protect our culture and not be tainted by the doctrinal and moral pollution of the city. 
Let's establish our fortress against the evil society out here. Now, I'm going to show my age, and my younger brothers and sisters will have no idea what I'm referring to. But their theme song was, Hold the Fort, for I am coming. And only, uh, does anybody know what that song, (laughs) maybe two of you have some idea of what I'm talking about. God writes them a letter saying, no, I want you to move into the city. I want you to settle down, buy property and build homes. I want you to raise your children and make its life your life. I don't want you to merely see your own little enclave prosper. I want you to pray for and seek the shalom, the health, the well-being of the city. I want you to bless it. I want you to make it whole in all of its functions and aspects. Astounding. God created the world to be a fabric with many varied entities woven together to be in beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, webbed relationships with each other. If I suddenly threw down thousands of threads, it wouldn't be very valuable. But if each thread is interwoven over, under, around, and through every other thread, so they interpenetrate each other and are interdependent, it's a different story. The more interwoven the threads, the more beautiful, strong, warm, healthier, the more at peace they are. That's what the word shalom means. When people have money, resources, advantages, talents, and they plunge them into the human community, they invest them so that the parks Schools and housing are great. You have strong social fabric. You experience social shalom. All of you are familiar with the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. At Christmas time, you can't get away from it. It's on every channel all day long. Clarence, the angel, appears to Jimmy Stewart who's the head of a prominent family that's been sharing and investing their resources for years. Clarence says, let me show you, George, what this place, what this life would be like without you. Bedford Falls becomes Potterville. When you remove George... The rich of that community hold on to their money and the social fabric falls apart. The pattern continues in the book of Acts. The early missionaries, especially the the Apostle Paul, were urban-centric. But even in the Pentecostal revival, it is God who has to nudge them out of their comfort zones. This time, it's not a fish or an army, but it's persecution that becomes the mode of transportation, scattering and sending them on their way. In every region, they went to the biggest city so that by the year 300 AD, roughly 50% of the populations of urban cities of the Greco-Roman world were Christians. 
Now, there are at least two reasons God calls his church to give a great amount of its metabolism to cities. There's a head reason and a heart reason. Every time God calls Jonah, he never simply says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach. He always emphasizes the tagline, that great city. Great cities are big and important. Large cities are strategic. It just makes sense. But the heart factor is intriguing. Jonah doesn't want to live in Nineveh. So he vacates, hoping something bad will happen. He pitches his camp in a place where a vine springs up overnight. It's green, leafy, shady. The text says that Jonah was exceedingly glad, or in the NIV, he was very happy. But when God disturbs Jonah's comfort, again with the withering of the plant, Jonah is so angry he wants to die. And God interrupts his pity party, verse 10, with this observation. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up in a night. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The contrast couldn't be more stark. Jonah cares for a plant while God loves the city. Question. Do you know what Jesus' favorite color is? Now, we know he loved mountains, lakes, deserts, and gardens. In fact, it's an interesting, it would be an interesting study to really look at what happened when Jesus was around the Lake of Galilee and what happened on the mountaintop and what happened in the desert and the Garden of Gethsemane. Significant things happened in all of those locations, and Jesus loved them all. The poet, it was the poet who said, I think I shall see, I think I shall never see anything so lovely as a tree. Wrong. Is God's favorite color green? Not unless my favorite Martian is real. A few more of you might recognize my favorite Martian than uh, hold the fort for I'm coming, but that's still old. God's favorite color is black, brown yellow, red, and white, and variations in between. God loves the color of flesh, human flesh. God is saying there is nothing more amazing, nothing more beautiful than a person. God loves cities, towns, and villages because they are chock full of amazing, beautiful, astounding, impressive people. Every bus, every apartment complex, every block crammed with people is full of spectacular beauty. Every playground teeming with kids is precious to him. Cities, villages, towns, burgs are home to Jesus' friends. The poor, the needy, the disenfranchised, the up and out, the down and out. These are people made in the image of God, created to rule and reign with him. 
They were made with a capacity to reason, choose, communicate, invent, and love God and others. Someone put it like this, man is a critter who can twitter. More of you understand that. Jonah is agitated by the loss of the vine, and God is more than a little bit ticked off at Jonah. Think of what made Jesus mad. He was angry at those who damaged children. So mad, he sounded more like mafia than Messiah. He said, if you harm one of these little ones, better for you that a millstone be draped around your neck and you be dropped into the depths of the sea. Or in the secret language of Omerta, better you sleep with a fish. He loved children. His kingdom, he said, was for children. Before Walt Disney and little children came. He also saw red when he came into contact with self-righteous, judgmental, religious people who looked down on Jesus' friends, the ones he showed the most compassion to, the prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, women, children, and thieves, the people society considered the least and the last. Jesus couldn't stand it when anyone was undervalued. In, in the stories of his compassion, we are never told that he had compassion on someone because they deserved it. It was only because they were in need. In fact, it moved him to tears. Two times it's recorded that he wept, once over a person, his friend Lazarus, and the other over a place, a zip code he knew well, Jerusalem. Second thing that stands out in this story is God's unique view of the city. God's call to the city and God's view of the city. He tells Jonah to go and preach against Nineveh because of its wickedness that has come up against me. Sounds, like a, sounds rather conservative, doesn't it? God comes across like a tra traditional values guy. Go, Nona, go, Jonah to Nineveh, preach fire and brimstone. But then he acts like what any conservative would call a bleeding heart liberal because he relents. The people of Nineveh repent. But do they really? Do they call on the name of Jehovah? Do they enter into a new covenant? Do they convert? It doesn't seem so. Uh, they probably say, yeah, you're right, we're, we've been too violent, we're really sorry, please don't hurt us. And although I'm sure in that moment it was sincere, God knew and we know from history it was superficial at best. They didn't relent, they didn't change direction, and Jonah freaks out. He says, God, you bleeding heart liberal, you'll forgive anyone. The most embryonic, half-hearted look in your direction and you give them a second chance. What's wrong with you? There's another twist in this plot. Our story. We are Jonah in this story. Nineveh, God says, has 120,000 people and also much cattle. 
I know God is an animal lover. That's not the point here. Cattle represented their assets, their wealth. Some well-meaning Christians will look at a large city, like in, in, in my world, Detroit, Pontiac, or Flint, you know, maybe in Ohio, uh, you know, Cleveland, or uh, Cincinnati, or um, some parts of Toledo, some parts of Bowling Green, perhaps, and say, this is a dark, terrible place, but somebody has to be here and share the good news with these unfortunate people. Is that concern for a city? It may be compassion for individuals, but not for a city. God cares about cities, towns, and villages. He's interested in the shalom, the economy, the health, the safety, the housing. He is not just in love with individual souls. He loves the community. On August 24th, 410 A.D., the city of Rome experienced its 9-11. That was the date the army of the Goths sacked Rome. They came over the walls, killing, raping, plundering, and burning. It was the first time the city of Rome had been attacked in over 1,000 years. Now this was unique because the Goths didn't stay and occupy. They just plundered the city and they left. The people were shattered. If Rome wasn't safe, what was? Into this vacuum came Augustine with his classic book, The City of God. Augustine said, the reason you're freaking out is that you have confused the eternal city, which is the moniker by which Rome went. Rome was called the eternal city. You have confused the eternal city with the city of God. Christians, he taught, were simultaneously members of both cities. But as a citizen of the city of God, you are absolutely safe. If you kill members of an earthly city, it's all over. But if you kill a citizen of the city of God, all you are doing is moving them to better quarters in the city. Augustine taught that the city of God was not just good people living next to bad people. It is the gospel of the kingdom, changing the political community that is built on self-interest and power and transforming it more and more into a culture based on concern for God's name, service, and love, not taking but giving. To make his case, Augustine referenced the two great plagues that influenced his time. During the reign of Marcus Aurelius, around A.D. 165, an epidemic of what may have been smallpox killed somewhere between a third and a fourth of the population, including Marcus Aurelius himself. A little less than a century later came a second epidemic in which at its height, 5,000 people were dying daily in the city of Rome alone. For the most part, people panicked. There was no guidance in the writings of Homer. 
No commands from the Greek god Zeus to care for dying people while putting your own life at risk. Greek historian Thucydides wrote how people in Athens responded during an earlier plague. He said, quote, they died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any intention for care. The bodies of the dying were heaped up one on top of the other. No fear of God or law of man had a restraining influence, close quote. Now what happened in Greece was being repeated in Rome. At the first onset of the disease, here's another um, quote from another historian. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and the contagion of the fatal disease. But there was in that world a community of people that followed a man who touched lepers while they were unclean and told his disciples to go and heal the sick. Dionysius, a third century bishop of Alexandria, wrote about the plagues. Here's what he said, heedless of danger, they, talking about Christians, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with a disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors, cheerfully accepting their pains." As Christian communities responded to the hungry and sick, even outsiders took notice. By the late fourth century, an opponent of the faith, Emperor Julian the Apostate, chastised pagan priests for not keeping up. He wrote this in a letter, quote, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, he's talking about their pagan priests, when the poor are neglected and overlooked by the priests, the impious Galileans, Christians, support not only their poor but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Now, I believe God is calling his church back to our cities, towns, and villages like the Jews of Babylon, I believe God is calling his church to go to places where the fabric is breaking down, where the weaker members are falling through, where the interpenetration and interdependence of things is not occurring. He's calling us to take the threads of our lives. We take our emotions our time, our energy, our stuff, our money, and we plunge it into the lives of other people through thousands of involvements. Fabric, thread, involvements, over, under, around, through. That's the shalom God wants his church to build. Let us go back to an earlier quote by Dionysius. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministered Christ to them. 
and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Where would they get an idea like that? And we come to God's love for the city. They have the same mind in them that was in Christ Jesus, who being God, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, submitting to a horrible death on the cross. Pastor Jeremy referenced it from 2 Corinthians 8 today. He who is rich became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. It's the great reversal of history. Jesus died the death I should have died so I could experience his life. He died the death of a common criminal, one of three that day. Karl Barth, the theologian, insists that it's a dangerous theological mistake to portray Jesus on the cross by himself in pictures or in words, since it does violence to the story in which three criminals were crucified that day, one good and two bad. Jesus did not die alone. We could say with Karl Barth that this was the first Christian community, three people, one good and two bad, one of whom became good. The three crosses of Golgotha challenge every church. If we call ourselves a church, where are the bad people? Jesus died as he lived in the company of bad people. The gospel can be summarized as Jesus ate good food with bad people. We live and die together, good and bad, and we never give up on anyone, no matter how bad. There were three criminals on Golgotha that day. Jesus was as much a thief as those robbers on his left and right. Jesus was the third thief. He pulled off the greatest heist in history in front of their eyes. The third thief had a long criminal record. Jesus had robbed the woman at the well, the woman with five husbands of her guilt and shame. He had robbed the cursed and ostracized lepers of their disease and disenfranchisement. Jesus robbed the lame, the sick, and the poor of their disgraced places on, on the fringe, their dishonored seats at the table. Jesus robbed two blind men of their muteness, and in giving them voice to praise, he gave them vision to see. Jesus had already robbed a crowd of 5,000 people of their complaints and self-pity. And he filled their bodies with, and their souls with good things. But Jesus, the greatest robber in history, pulled off still a greater caper. You might call it the great soul robbery. Jesus often contrasted sanctimonious, self-righteous Pharisees and the contrite, confessing sinners such as tax collectors and prostitutes. He robbed all the smug, proud, and pious of their self-sufficiency. Self-reliance hung helpless on the cross with Jesus. Only God's grace can redeem our past and redream our future. This was the most audacious theft through his sacrifice on the cross. 
in his descent into hell and death, Jesus showed just how powerful dependency on God could be. Jesus, crucified among thieves, performed his greatest robbery after his execution. Jesus robbed Satan of his power over sin and death. Jesus robbed death itself of its victory. Jesus ripped off the grave and stung the sting of death's futility and finality. The third thief on Golgotha committed his greatest robbery after he was cut down and buried. He robbed death of its power when he rose again to new life. Hallelujah! The most important decision every human being will ever make is this. Will you give Jesus the license to steal? He wants to steal your heart. The story of Calvary asks each of us, in whom will you ultimately put your trust? Will you only trust in yourself, your power, your strength, your goodness? Or will you give Jesus the license to steal? Will you confess that you are at your most basic level of self, a sinner in need of God's mercy and utterly dependent on God's goodness? The third thief wants to rob every day the arrogant of their self-sufficiency, the selfish of their self-centeredness, the humorless of their solemnity, the untouchables of their invulnerability, the sick of their disease and doubts about the future, the atheists of of their skepticism, the control freaks of their fears and obsessions. But what is the greatest heist Jesus wants to commit on a daily basis? Jesus wants to rob Satan of his power over you and and the grave grave of sin and death. To paraphrase an old song that went globally after it was written in 1855, what a thief we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to steal. The third thief steals our griefs, our sins, our hurts, our sorrows, and all the things he bore on the cross. That's our message to Bowling Green and Northwest Ohio. That's what our pastor is trying to help us to do with all the activities coming up in the next few years. Isn't it incredible all that's, all that's going to happen? That's God's dream, his hope for our church and our city. And that's why our pastor has come to cast that kind of vision, to instruct us, to help us find our place, to equip us, to reach out to men and women and boys and girls with the message of Jesus Christ. And, and so today I pray that along with me you will rededicate yourself. We are the body of Christ. The spirit of the living God is upon us and he has called us, our fellowship, our church to be a hospital room. And it's really not a good metaphor because it implies people who are hurting come to us and, and we're a mobile, maybe more of a mobile emergency unit where we go out to the poor and hurting and broken and bruised and lost and down and out and up and out and through our lives and our ministries and our touch, they are saved and healed and delivered by the power of God. I hope every, every family, every person will find some way to be involved over the next month in all these activities. 
Sign up. There's something you can do. Give your time. Give your energy. Give your resources. Let's tell the city of Bowling Green that God loves them and we love them. God cares for Bowling Green. Hallelujah. <clears throat> Ethan Allen, I'm closing with this. If the, oh, they're back already. <laughs> Mind readers. I went that long already. <laughs> Ethan Allen, a name you'll recognize from history, was for years an officer in the United States Army. He was an infidel who married a Christian. They had a little girl. In the early years, she went to church with her mother. But as she became a teenager, she dropped out of church and went with her father to the dance halls. One night, she was out with a group of friends. They had been swimming, and she caught cold. It progressed into pneumonia, and she was dying. Ethan Allen told a group of businessmen, my, my daughter said to me, Daddy, I, I'm dying, am I not? And I replied, yes, honey, you're going to die. Allen's wife began to weep, but there wasn't a tear in his daughter's eyes. She said, Daddy, since I'm dying, I have to know the answer. I love you, Daddy. And I trust what you say. Daddy, while I'm dying, should I, should I die mommy's way or your way? And Alan said, I began to cry. And then I threw my body on hers and I said, honey, choose mommy's way. Choose mommy's way. Quickly, honey, choose mommy's way. And Alan continued, before I could get it all said, she had gone off to meet Jesus. He said, I'll never know until I stand before God whether she chose mommy's way or daddy's way. This isn't a game we're playing. We have the high and holy privilege of investing our lives in loving people into choosing Jesus' way. That's what Holy Week is all about. That's what this month is all about, the pop-up parties. Awesome. That's what it's all about. Telling people there's a God who cares for them. He loves cities. He loves people. He loves cities because of the people in them. He loves them. And um, he wants us to do more than wait for them to wander in here, hear the gospel, but we're to go out there and compel them to come in. God help us. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this season in our church and uh, what's going to follow. And I pray that what happens over these next weeks will become a, a greater movement that will gain power and strength and resources and, and anointing and will continue to grow into newer avenues and other avenues of touching our city, impacting our city, impacting people. Thank you, Lord. You love Bowling Green. You love Northwest Ohio. You love your church. And you've given us the privilege of being laborers together with you. Lord, we dedicate ourselves afresh and anew to that. Lord, help us to follow our pastor's lead and use our gifts and our resources in the best possible way to uh, fulfill what you're calling us to do and to be. 
Lord, I pray today for people that may be in the service that don't have a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that in the closing moment, you'll draw people to Jesus. Draw people to Jesus today. And while our heads are bowed, maybe that's you today, and you'd say, Pastor, I'm not right with God. I don't know Jesus is my personal Savior. The Bible says we've sinned, but you know, we know, we know that. The good news is God loves us. It's incredible. He loves us. That's why Jesus came. He was rich. He was in heaven. He had everything. He didn't need anything. But he loved you. He loved me. He came into this world and lived a sinless life, and he went to the cross. He took all of our sin. He paid the price. He was God's lamb, the sacrifice. He paid for your sins, and his blood can make you clean today. He shed his blood on the cross, and he wants to steal your heart. He wants to steal your heart and take all the bad things out and fill it with good things. He wants to fill your heart with love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. wants to fill you with life. But he's a gentleman. He doesn't sneak in by night through the window and steal. He comes to the front door and says, I'm here to steal the bad things and to give, replace them with good things. Would you let him steal your heart today? Will you let him steal your heart? Will you let him take away your sin and all the sickness of the inside and fill it with life? All you have to do is repent. That just means turn around. You're going one way. You're living for yourself. You turn and say, God, I'm sorry for that, and I want to live for you. I need your help. Jesus not only died, but he rose again. He did rob the death, death in the grave of all of its power. You can have eternal life, eternal, abundant life.